It was like you wake up every morning and you put one foot in front of the other foot and you keep going, just trusting that God has it all in His control, which I totally believed from that day forward and those days before that day forward that He did. I'm Carla Williams, and this is our fifth episode in the Stories of Grace podcast series. Is God's grace greater than our tragedies? Sometimes, even though we really believe in the supremacy of God's grace, we'd rather have the easier life. If we're going to have to give up something huge to fully experience His grace, maybe we're better off without it. Of course, we'd never say that, even to ourselves. But then when reality hits and we realize we can have a full measure of His grace or we can keep our staged security, we're not so quick to choose. For my guest, Betty, the sacrifice was unthinkable. But in the process, she's discovered the untold, immeasurable depths of grace. And though she didn't choose this path, She's somehow stronger because of it. Her story began when she was 12. That's when she decided she wanted to be a missionary. You know, all I can say is God just moved in my heart. It was not like even a decision that I had to make. It was from the time that I was baptized into Christ that I had this feeling of gratefulness in my heart for God saving me from my sins. And I thought, what else could I do for Him other than give my life to what we then called full-time Christian service and help others to experience that same grace? Basically, I was Tar Heel born and bred in North Carolina. Never left the state really until I was 18 years old and went to school at Johnson Bible College where I longed with all of my heart to go to a foreign field to share the gospel with people who hadn't known about Jesus before. I ended up getting married, but I won't say instead, because within two years of our graduation from college, my husband Cecil and I did leave for Zambia, Africa. I can go on to say that we were serving together in Zambia and Mozambique for 23 years. It was a glorious 23 years, and God was good through it all. Betty and Cecil worked to train church leaders in Africa. They raised their five kids while they navigated endless surprises and obstacles. They were missionaries before the age of extensive training, so they were largely figuring things out on their own through prayer and trial. And God was using them to accomplish great things. When we went there, we went to work with an association of churches that were already established, 40 churches, I believe. There was a lot of confusion in those churches. Of course, Mozambique had gone through years and years of civil war. There had been very few who knew the truth and could teach the truth to these churches. So a lot of the time that we spent in Mozambique was trying to straighten out some of that. I think you would call it syncretism. All these religions that had kind of flowed together. Many of these churches were still making animal sacrifices. A lot of the people still were wearing the cords from the witch doctor, still fearing evil spirits. And a whole lot of our time was spent in teaching 
the truth about God, who He is, what He expects of us as Christians, and how Jesus has taken care of that, how Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice, how we don't have to fear Satan, we don't have to follow any of those ways of the witch doctor because Jesus is greater than all of those things. They were living a life they loved, a life God had called them into, and a life that was bringing God glory. They'd found contentment in a continent away, and they were in it together. But all that changed in one night. The night was January 20th of the year 2000. My husband Cecil and our son Daniel had gone to South Africa early in that day with two vehicles, which they were seeking to repair so that they could take them the following day into a bush area in Mozambique for a weekend seminar. They were planning to sleep along with some of the church leaders under the canopy of the two trucks, which had been leaking. So they wanted to repair the leaks in the canopy so that everybody wouldn't get wet. Well, that night, before Daniel and Cecil returned, our youngest daughter, Deborah, and our intern, Tim, and I were sitting around the table playing Monopoly, one of my favorite games, which I always won. When Daniel and Cecil returned, Daniel came in the house and said, hey, Mom, we're back. Dad's in the car. He's listening to something, a tape on the radio. He'll be in soon. We began to clean up the game, and Tim prepared to go home. Cecil came in, took a Coca-Cola from the crate that was always available since we lived five kilometers down the road from the Coca-Cola factory. Drank that quickly, refused any supper because he said he was so tired and had to get up early the next morning to leave for the weekend seminar. Deborah and I finished cleaning up. Tim went home. Deborah went to her room, put on earphones, started listening to music. Daniel went to his room. It seemed like just another ordinary night, one they'd lived in some way a thousand times before. The extra work of living in Africa, their two kids who were still at home being normal teenagers, interns spending their evenings with the family. There was no reason to suspect their life was mere minutes from shattering. I went into my bedroom, put on my nightgown, sat on the side of the bed to begin laying down. When Daniel came in the room saying, Mom, Mom, did you hear those gunshots? I said, yes, but that wasn't an uncommon thing for us to hear in that area. There were a lot of gunshots and sound traveled easily. Cecil was sound asleep, so Daniel started saying, we've got to wake up, Dad, we've got to wake up, Dad. Those shots are on the compound, so... We began waking him up, and Daniel grabbed the whistle, which we used to call the guard, an old man at the front of the compound, if there was ever any trouble, which there never had been before. Cecil grabbed his baseball bat. Daniel began praying, Father, help my family, help my family, help my family. We watched out our bedroom window, which was facing the front of the duplex below us, and we heard pounding on the doors at that duplex. Just in a minute, we saw Tim, the intern, run through the front door, leap over the fence that separated our yard from his yard, keep on going. We eventually learned that he had climbed a cashew tree in the yard beside us. 
By then, the thieves, the four men with AK-47s were coming out of that door and I panicked saying, we've got to get Deborah, we've got to get Deborah, we've got to get Deborah, who was on the other side of our house. So Cecil left the bedroom with the baseball bat to get Deborah from the bedroom. Just as he left, however, the four men came through our back door and followed him as he went around the corner to Deborah's bedroom. I don't know why, but for some reason, it was dark in the house, of course, all the lights were off. I don't know if they perceived that his baseball bat was a gun, or, but for some reason, they fired a shot that did hit him just above or in his heart, somewhere in that that area. By this time, Deborah had heard the banging on the doors and thought that we had locked her brother out of the house. So she left the bedroom to go unlock the front door for her brother, where she thought he was. That was at the point that the thieves were in pursuit of Cecil. Deborah crawled from her bedroom into the living room under the coffee table. And it was at that point that the shot was fired basically over her head and into her dad's heart. Eventually she made herself her way into my bedroom where Daniel and I still were. I had heard the shot. I had heard Cecil groan. I knew when he didn't come back for us that he had and heard no other sounds that he had to be dead. And just like that, the life Betty loved would never be the same again. Her husband was gone, her children had lost their father, and there were still four armed thieves in her house. By then, the thieves came into our bedroom and began demanding money. We gave them everything we had, which wasn't that much, And they must have believed we had more because they kept on and on and on. Give us more, give us more, give us more. Daniel, who had a better command of all the languages they were speaking, Shangan, Portuguese, Afrikaans, English, they each seemed to be speaking a different language or maybe trying to find one that they thought we would understand, kept telling them, take our vehicle, take our vehicle. Here are the keys. We don't have any more money. Eventually, I guess they believed him because they said, okay, come with us and show us the way off of the compound. They knew that they couldn't go back the way they had come in because they knew that they had shot the guard and that villagers were already gathering at the front of the compound. So Daniel took them, I could hear them still under our bedroom window, demanding from Daniel more money. He eventually led them to the back of the compound where there was a hole, a gap in the thorn hedge, and said, here, you can go this way. And they turned to him by the grace of God, no doubt, and said, okay, you can go back. Just don't call the police. There's no reason that they should have done that. They had already killed one person, shot another person. They didn't know they hadn't killed the other person and yet were saying to Daniel, go back to your house. So I believe in God's grace, he totally provided for the protection of Daniel's life that night, for the protection of my life, for the protection of Deborah's life. There was really no reason that they didn't do more harm to us 
except for the grace of God. I left the office, went to find Deborah, whom I could hear crying at this point. She had found her dad's body, and I began to console her to the best of my ability. When Daniel re-entered the house, I saw him come in. He was crying, and he said to me, Mom, Mom, why did they have to kill my dad? Again, by God's grace, I know, and not out of any human thing within me came the words from my mouth. I don't know, Daniel, but I do know that in all things, God works together for good for those who love him and are called according to his holy purposes. That seemed to calm me. It calmed the children and just the peace of Christ was there with us in the midst of a lot of sorrow, grief, and chaos. The rest of the night and the next few days were a whirlwind of activity and planning as Betty and her children prepared to leave Africa with Cecil's body. And God's grace was already covering them, washing over them as each step took them farther away from the normalcy they'd established. Not coincidentally, Betty had mentally made all of these plans many times before. They were living in a wild and unpredictable land, and there had been countless situations when Cecil had been delayed in a village or stuck in a training days longer than expected, with no way of communicating his predicament with his worried wife back home. She already had a worst-case scenario plan that had been sitting in her mind without cause for action for years. Of course, she never really wanted to have to dust it off, but when called on to move forward, it was like reciting an old memory. God carried them through, just as he would continue to do. I asked Betty how she managed to move forward in the midst of an unimaginable tragedy. That's a hard question, Carla. Again, I can only credit it to the grace of God and his just plan step by step by step. It was like you wake up every morning and you put one foot in front of the other foot and you keep going, just trusting that God has it all in his control, which I totally believed from that day forward and those days before that day forward that he did. I think one thing that impressed me so much and I'll always remember was the day that we returned to Louisville and my oldest son had arranged a 12-passenger van from a Louisville Bible College. He had asked, could I take this to the airport? And when we arrived, he said, Mom, I wanted all of us to be together in this van before we leave the airport because I want you to know that what's happened to our dad will not turn us against God. So there we were, all five children, their husbands, and the few grandchildren I had at that point in that one place with that affirmation from my son, my oldest son, that we will not turn our backs against God. We will not be angry with Him. We also believe that He is in control. A nearby country church offered their parsonage for Betty and her family to stay in while they recovered. That season, right after Cecil's death, while Betty was living in this remote parsonage in the hills, was a season for healing. It was perfectly orchestrated so that God could continue to be gracious to a family who'd lost a husband and father, yes, but also an entire continent they'd spent more than 20 years loving. 
It was a time to mourn, a time to listen, a time to rest. You know, God planned all this too, I have no doubt whatsoever. Not only were we there in just total peaceful surroundings, but also He did these things that just brought peace every single day. Every morning I would wake up, go to the big picture window, open the curtains that looked out over the church, sort of down at the bottom of the hill, And there was the cross, the steeple, the cross steeple framed against the hills. And every day my mind would think the scripture, I will lift up my eyes into the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. What a comfort that was. I would turn then from the window and go to my desk open up my computer and every morning for the three months we were there on that computer, the first message I would see was from a friend in Papua New Guinea, who of course was 12 hours ahead of us in time. Every morning she had risen from her bed and prayed for me. And not only had she prayed, but she had written out these prayers in great detail. Every morning I got to read that. God was so sweet and patient and present with Betty while she spent the season grieving. One morning, she grumbled out loud to herself that she didn't even have anyone to drink tea with. In Mozambique, she'd been meeting with the other women on her team every day to drink tea and pray for the ministry there. Here, in this lonely little parsonage, her friends were far away and she was feeling the loss. She crossed her arms and sulked on the couch. That taught me again God's grace and hearing even our complaints. I call that my complaining prayer. And God answered it that very afternoon when a lady knocked on my door. I opened the door. There she was. I don't know her name even to this day. I'm sure she told me her name, but it far escapes me. There she was with this big basket in her hands. And she said, I read your story in the Southeast Outlook, and I just wanted to do something to show you that I care. She came in the house. I unwrapped the big thing she had in her hand, and it was a basket with the prettiest little teapot and all kinds of teas in that basket. I thought, oh my goodness, God heard the cry of my heart and answered in just the sweetest and gentlest way any father ever could have. After her season of grief, Betty knew she was going to need to get up and going. Daniel was about to start college and Deborah was in high school and she needed to take care of them. Because she already had a teaching degree, she naturally sought out a position and began teaching at a private school in Louisville. But after a few years, she realized something important. At that point, I began to think, hey, I never asked God, is this really what you want me to do? I love teaching school, but I admit, I did not really ask God, what should I do next? So at the end of the fourth year, of teaching, I began to ask God, you know what, I'm pretty happy here, but if there's something else you'd rather I be doing, then just let me know, because I still love missions too, very much. These prayers were private. She didn't tell anyone she was looking to God for direction, but one of her friends started mentioning a notice she'd seen about a global missions organization, Team Expansion, whose home office was in Louisville. They needed a prayer coordinator. Her friend kept pointing it out to Betty. Betty checked out the job description and immediately decided she couldn't do that. 
but God kept nudging her and eventually she agreed to trust him and leap. Now, she's the vice president of prayer for an organization who plants churches among unreached people groups. She's proactively changing the kingdom and training others to join her through prayer. Betty's impact on the world did not end the night her husband was killed in Africa. In many ways, it was just beginning. Now, it's been 17 years since that fateful night. The church in Mozambique is still thriving. Betty is in a role that grows her faith every day. Her children are committed to the Lord and are teaching their children about His great grace. And in many ways, Betty is not the same person she was before her husband died. She's stronger, braver, and even more joyful. I think I am more outspoken, have a little bit more courage. And Carla, I don't even know how to say this. In some ways, I have more joy. I've always been a happy person and felt the peace and joy of Jesus in my life. But I just feel my joy growing and growing and growing even in these 17 years since Cecil's death. I just, one day, I was speaking early after Cecil died to a convention in Atlanta, and I was on my knees praying about this. I had my Bible open, and there in Nehemiah, there was the verse, the joy of the Lord is my strength. But I noticed something that I never noticed about that verse before. Just before it says, the joy of the Lord is my strength, It says, do not grieve. I never thought about that before. And so from that day forth, I thought, okay, there is a time to grieve, but now is the time for grieving to be ended and let the joy of the Lord be my strength. And he just keeps increasing it. Despite or probably because of her immense suffering and loss, Betty has a lot to say about grace. When you get her started, she laughs contagiously as she relishes the gifts her father has given her. She's not a broken widow, lost and bitter. She's a thriving, overflowing cup of contentment and eagerness to serve her great God. You know the verse that says, I count all things for loss. I count all things for loss. God's grace is greater than my tragedy. You've been listening to Stories of Grace, a podcast from City on a Hill, produced by Dayton Cole and hosted by Carla Williams. Stories of Grace was inspired by Grace is Greater from pastor and author Kyle Eidelman. Find the book, video series, and a full line of resources from City on a Hill and Kyle Eidelman at gracesgreaterstudy.com.